Hello. In this episode, I speak with Frances Cosway of White Pebble Interiors. Uh, Frances is an interior designer based in Melbourne and she founded White Pebble Interiors in 2010. And in this episode, we're going to be chatting about the design and build of her own sustainable family home uh, in Melbourne, which she did in 2014. And I'm really excited to be sharing this with you because it's been published several times. It's won awards. She opens it up for Sustainable House Day and it's really exciting to be able to talk with her about it. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now, before I jump into my interview with Francis, let me tell you that this episode and this season of the podcast is brought to you by my online course, How to Get It Right in Your Reno or New Home. So this is a super fast course that will help you get ready for your renovation or building project in the best way possible. In it, I share my step-by-step system. It's proven. It'll save you time, stress and money in your project. It's all about helping you know what you need to know so that you can create the perfect home for you simply and with confidence and avoid the drama and the headaches. You can join now. You can get access to a fantastic Facebook community. There's gorgeous homeowners in there sharing their journey. And there's also live Q&A sessions with me where you can get all your questions answered, plus tools and resources you need to achieve success in your project. So head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash how to get it right to learn more and join us. Now, let me introduce Francis to you. So as I said, Frances is an interior designer. She's also a published author and she's a speaker with a passion for creating beautiful homes people love to live in. With over 15 years experience in renovating and building, her true passion lies with helping clients design and build their forever homes. She lived in Europe for 12 years and she draws on her own unique influences while seamlessly incorporating the individual styles of her clients when developing projects. Her philosophy on her design and I love this, is that your home is a story of you, how you live, your lifestyle and your life journey. And she's committed to ensuring that every home she works on is a true reflection of its owners based on these principles. Frances established White Pebble Interiors in 2010 after leaving the corporate world and White Pebble Interiors is an interior design studio that specialises in creating bespoke forever homes. With a strong emphasis on sustainability, they pride themselves on recommending sustainable principles and using sustainable materials wherever they can, and they are open and honest and break with convention to ensure designs are not just good enough, but reflect what their clients really want them to be based on how they live their life. Francis wrote the book Your Forever Home in 2017 as a practical guide for people about to embark on building or renovating And she's completed many of her own new build and subdivision projects, including the build of her family's own forever home in 2014. And this is the home we're going to be talking about. It's featured in several publications, including House and Garden and the Herald Sun, and it's been profiled internationally on House. It won uh, the Bayside Best Ecological and Sustainable Build Award and... It's just, I'm really, I can't tell you how excited I am to be sharing this with you because uh, it's just a great example of how to achieve a beautiful, sustainable forever home. I think you're going to really enjoy hearing about Frances and her family's journey to a sustainable home and, and to be able to take away some great ideas and tips for your own project. Well, Francis, it's fantastic to have you here. And I'm so excited to be talking about the White Pebble House because you and I actually connected when I shared it on Undercover Architect's social mm. pages and you you commented that it was your home and it sort of blossomed into this fantastic conversation. We've got lots more coming up for the UA community, which they'll find out about soon. But yeah, I'm just, your house is stunning. And to know that it's also sustainable, it like it's just this it's this glorious example of what's possible in terms of getting it right in this area and being, you know, that being sustainable doesn't mean a compromise in the aesthetic and the lifestyle in your home. So can you just tell us a little bit about who actually lives in the house? Who's who was the house created for? 
So it was created for a family of four, effectively. So my husband, our two children, two girls, eight and nine, and then also uh, an element I had to also then facilitate my um, business. So we specifically designed for that as well. And, and just on your comment as well around having a house that looks good and is also sustainable, that was really one of the key things that we set out to prove that it could be done. It's and it's it's a stunning, stunning home, and I'll Thank pop you. some I'll pop some images on the blog so that everybody can see as well, and there'll be a link to that in the show notes so that you can check that out, um, because it, yeah, there's some fantastic photos, and and you do open it up for sustainable house open day as well, so there'll be links for that too. So now, can you tell me a little bit about the home size and location, just in terms of sort of how it's you know the physical sort of size of it and. Yeah, sure. So it's located in Bayside, Melbourne. So we live relatively close uh, to the beach. Uh, it's The land is 766 square metres. So it's, I suppose, a relatively large suburban block. We're 15 kilometres outside of Melbourne. And the house size is uh, 40 squares, which is quite large. That does also include the garage. We've got a double garage. So it is a large house. Um, but we have then also obviously incorporated the sustainable principles. So that's probably, um, yeah, that, that covers that off. Five bedrooms. Um, we ex- it sounds like a lot. Uh, each of our children have got a bedroom. One of those rooms is a, an office, which then also has been designed so that it can become a spare room, a secondary master because it's downstairs. It's got an ensuite as well as a powder room, so it's double-sided. And um, and then we obviously needed a space. Um, we needed a spare room because we originally had an au pair and we have a lot of grandparents stay who live a fair way away. So that room does get used. And the flexibility with that is it's not open. It's got a door so that we can actually use that as a kid's retreat later on. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, because, and I mean, what you've described is fairly customary for what most homeowners that I speak to are seeking to create. And, and that, that I'm finding more and more that homeowners are needing to think about, um, you know, they, they are not, they're not living near their family. So they do have grandparents come and stay for extended periods, or they're also thinking about perhaps that their, their, the grandparents may move in at some point, or like you say that, you know, um, you know, as, as you get older in the home, you might decide to live on the lower floor rather than on the upper floor. So it is that thing of just understanding the home's going to last a long time and need to, um, and need to accommodate perhaps the flexibility around these things, isn't it? So it's, Exactly. It needs to adapt. And I mean, I call it future proofing so that rooms can be adaptable, which is probably why I'm so big on having floor, um, flexible floor plans and doors so that rooms can be more than one thing at any time. Fantastic. And just, I mean, as an interior designer, I know as an architect, uh, whenever we've built or renovated it, there's a certain level of additional pressure and expectation you put on yourself I think because you know <laughs> it's this sort of it's an opportunity to experiment and test ideas that perhaps you haven't been able to convince clients to do but you also know that it's a it's a permanent record of of how well those experiments might have gone how did you feel embarking on this process of designing and creating your own home in the white pebble house Look, I was really excited because I knew that this was going to be our forever home. So I knew we were going to be here for 10 plus years. So I think the most exciting thing for me was I didn't. we didn't consider resale. We didn't consider what anyone else was thinking. It was purely um, built for us. Um, I didn't look at it about trends. I wasn't following any trends. So I really, I suppose, followed my own design philosophy that I talk about with my clients about follow your heart always use things that you love because you'll never tire of those things and forget about what you're seeing on TV and everything else. So I really um, was able to do that with this home. And it's not to everyone's taste, but really that's not why you build a forever home. It's not why you actually build. It's got to be for you and you've got to have some sort of emotional, emotional connection. So I was really excited about that. Probably the thing I was most excited about was I'm a massive fan of Morocco and I'd always wanted a Moroccan-inspired bathroom and I thought, finally, I can do it. (laughs) And um, I couldn't get the materials at the time because the house is four and a half years old. It was very, very difficult. Um, But I was able to get that type of look in one of the bathrooms. So I was probably more excited about that than... Well, that was one of the most exciting things for me. But there is the pressure, as you say, around, um, you, you know, that particularly because my office is at home at the moment, um, I knew that clients would be coming here. So there was that pressure. 
But the other thing in the back of my mind is I can show people what we've done and I knew that I'd be able to use it as a um, almost like a showroom, I suppose, in some aspects, and that's been really beneficial. So there's pressure and a bit of it and lots of excitement too. That's fantastic. And I, I love that, uh, you know, that idea, which which is something that comes across in a lot of your work and in your book as well, this um, this commitment to it being your home and it being, mm. it being about you and your family and what you love having around you every day and not about it needing to be, you know, magazine worthy to satisfy latest trends, but being magazine worthy because it's you showing what you do as an interior designer and what your core values are as an interior designer. So, yeah, I think that it's a fantastic way that you've described that. The sustainability part, though, did that, was that always a goal or did that happen more organically? What was, what was sort of the conversation and the thought process around making it so sustainable as a home? Um, it was definitely a goal. Um, I think that was the other reason we really wanted to build. We'd really toyed around with the idea of renovating. I'd actually never lived in a, um, a period home. I'd always had new apartments when I lived overseas and I really had this dream or desire to have a really beautiful period home. But when we really thought about it, there were so many negatives for us from a sustainability perspective. It was going to be a lot harder to do it and there would have been a lot of things we had to compromise on and we realised we had to build from scratch to get it as sustainable as possible. So that was really a core value and a core goal that we really didn't deviate from. Sure, we had to make compromises, but that was definitely something from the outset that we wanted to achieve. And was that uh, driven by a commitment to the planet, wanting to save money on ongoing maintenance yeah. costs? Or how, what was sort of the, did you have a main sort of thought process around why it needed to be sustainable? Look, I think it was um, a combination of us wanting to be good to the planet. We're both, I suppose, quite environmental in our outlook. We both lived overseas. My husband and I lived in Europe. So to see what they could achieve over there and how far behind we are in Australia, uh, we just knew that it was doable. And we'd experienced living in a home, living in homes overseas that were really comfortable all year round. And it's very difficult to explain that to someone unless you've lived in that environment that you don't need to put on artificial heating or cooling. So I suppose it was a combination of that. It was a combination of really being good to the environment. And I suppose we wanted to do as much as we could for the planet in, you know, the, the fact that there's not really much going on in Australia from a legislation perspective. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to then go and do our own thing and be less reliant on, um, you know, high electricity bills and, you know, just being able to use our own water from uh, what we've captured from the rate, it just felt, it just feels good to be able to do those things. So I suppose it's a little bit to give back to the environment and the planet. I'm finding this as a consistent theme, actually. People who've travelled overseas lived in better better designed, better built homes than what's sort of customary in Australia and coming back and realising it just can be different and it should be different and we are behind and we've always done these things this way and it's time that we caught up. So, and this, I actually... Um, uh, when I put out one of the episodes recently and I, uh, the question that I posed was that do we really need to build this way in Australia because we're in such a mild climate? And somebody actually emailed me and said, do people seriously still think this? And the hilarious thing was I was, it was, it wasn't hilarious, but it was a 38-degree day for me that day. Then the next day was uh, over 40 degrees and I was like, we are not in a mild climate anymore. This is not a mild climate. You know, we need to accept Australia has extremes. Uh, those extremes are lasting longer and our homes need to be better built in order to keep us comfortable during those times. So when you were thinking about this, making this commitment, did you think, okay, we're going to have to budget extra for this? How did you factor that into sort of shaping your budget for the project? Look, I suppose uh, we knew that it would probably cost a little bit more, but I think there is a big notion that it's going to cost a lot more. Um, my husband is now a passive house consultant and I think his reckoning is it's around 10 to 20%, depending on, I suppose, the size of the home and, and things like that. So it's it's comparable and we made very conscious compromises. Everyone works to a budget um, and, you know, we had a budget as well, but I suppose we made compromises on other areas. We did not compromise on the build structure. 
Um, you get one go at the build structure and it's really the things that you can't see that we put the money into, but we knew that that was going to have an impact on the comfort of the home and, and how it was going to be. Uh, I think yeah. in Australia people are bigger is better and in Europe, coming back to your point before, bigger is not better, good design is better. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Oh, that's yeah. I need to put that on a poster. That's <laughs> because it is. It's that it. Uh, it's it's that exercising of restraint and realizing where your investment is going to make the biggest difference mm-hmm. to the long term durability of your home and your lifestyle overall. Because you know you might love the Caesar stone bench tops and you might love you know that incredible pendant light fitting and you might love the whiz bang you know features that you've put in, but you'll be you know in five ten years time when in the materials that you've built from or the structures, you know, letting in moisture or things are starting to deteriorate, that will be what you're frustrated by day in, day out. And and when you're having to then shell out two and a half thousand dollars a quarter in electricity bills because you've got the air conditioning running so yeah. frequently. So it's it, all of those things. This I love this value. It, it's, it's like you say, everybody has to build on a budget. A budget isn't a bucket of money. It's your opportunity to exercise what you value, you know, like what 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 do you that, value, you know? So, yeah. That's exactly right. And we had actually a lot of people um, that we knew building at a similar time and they said we're going to build a sustainable house. It was so exciting to think a lot of people that we know are going to go through this same, this same journey. And in the end they they chose to have bigger, they chose to have massive pools, they chose to have a bigger air conditioner because they and they sold their soul, I suppose, and and didn't follow. And I suppose we're passionate, so we were not going to do that. It just had to be. We made other compromises that most people wouldn't see. We know that they're there, um, but we, there's no way we were going to compromise on the sustainability. This house is built to last. It won't be knocked over in twenty years. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> So can you talk through some of those um, sustainability measures that you incorporated? So particularly starting with the design sort of ideas and how you went about designing for sustainability. So some of the things that we, what we incorporated, so we've got um, Hebel panels, which is a lightweight aerated concrete. We've got really good insulation in the walls. And I suppose that's something that's very passive house, insulate until you can't get an inch more in. So uh, uh, 4.5 in the walls, six in the ceilings with a flat roof. We did a wall wrap. Uh, which is not that common in Australia. And I can remember when we were getting it installed, uh, we had European guys doing it and they said, oh, we've never seen this here. You're doing a wall wrap, uh, which was great. And I always describe that as a blanket around your house. Um, We've got a heat recovery ventilator, which means our house had to be air sealed. So we actually had a Dutch consultant come in who did the air blower test to make sure where the leakages were and he then filled in all the gaps in the frame and so forth. We made sure we had shade devices on north, particularly north and west-facing windows and the best windows that we could possibly afford. Now, obviously, we could go and spend 100000 on Parhammer windows. Our budget didn't reach to that, and this is, I suppose, one of the compromises. We put in the best that we could possibly afford, but we had low E and argon-filled and thermally broken. Okay. Uh, and orientation was really important. So we set out about, I suppose we've incorporated passive solar design principles around orientation, but then also a lot of the passive house principles, even though it's not a passive house. Um, we've subsequently learned much, much more since we've built. And so there are things there would be a couple of things that we would do differently from that aspect. But I suppose they're the core the core things that uh, we set out to do or incorporate. Fantastic. And what what orientation was the block facing? Did you did, when you looked for the block? Did you specifically look for something that was was facing a particular direction? Absolutely. So we've got a east front, west back, but we knew that we could actually design so that we could then have an alfresco that was northeast facing. So that was great. It actually had an opposite orientation with the house that was on the block, which I must add was beyond any sort of renovation. We were not keen to knock down anything that was salvageable. Um, it really was completely not salvageable. So I felt okay about that too because that's also an environmental impact that we weren't just knocking down a perfectly great house to build something to our own spec. So sorry, I went off track there, but that, that was important. Um, so, yeah, the orientate we did not look at anything that had a south-facing rear. 
Uh, we didn't look at anything that had a west-facing front. We'd lived in that orientation before and I really disliked it. And I love the fact, actually, I didn't think we'd enjoy having a west-facing garden as much as we do because we see the sunsets, but we also get the north. So, And we've planted... Uh, planted out the the uh, alfresco as well, so that we can minimise the impact of the west shading with a um, ornamental grape that okay. then loses its leaves in winter. So we can get that west coming in, but in summer it completely shades it out, which is just stunning. That's a so, gra- yeah, that's oh, a great idea. Yeah, using that deciduous planting to make sure that you're yeah, making the most of that winter afternoon absolutely. sun. But orientation of the block was absolutely critical. Fantastic. Yeah, and so designing for orientation, clearly a lot of material choices, mechanical systems, those types of things. You you mentioned uh, and you've got a blog about opening up for the Sustainable House Day on your website, which I'll pop a link mm-hmm. to in the show notes as well. But you talked about people being interested in about things like the timber tiles. You, you know, you mentioned the clothesline choice, I think, was another thing that people were interested in. What have you found has been people's reactions to some of the things that you've chosen and when you've sort of pointed things out, have they noticed that, you know, because when I look at your home, I think, well, that actually doesn't look from the photographs, it doesn't look extremely different to a contemporary home, you know. So, but it's obviously got all of this, uh, you know, this uh, fantastic sustainability built into it. So, the timber tiles and those types of things. How? What have you seen people's reactions, and what what have those been? Those things that you've chosen, whereabouts of did you source them? So, the timber tile. I'm so passionate about these t- tiles. I actually specified the tile before we even had found a design an architect. Um, and there was a couple of reasons for the tiles, and I think why people were so blown away with them when we opened the house or when anyone comes here, including the tradies when they were building, was they are so lifelike and they're a digital print. They look so real and yet they are low maintenance. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons we chose them, there was two main reasons. One is the aesthetic, the warmth of timber. You just can't beat it and it's just so such a beautiful aesthetic to have a timber look and I know some people will say well it's not a natural product but the reason we chose tile is because of the thermal mass in the concrete so having a timber floor or any other sort of floor would have compromised on the thermal mass that we're gaining from the slab so the way our house has been designed with the north facing um, north facing alfresco and living area the northwest is that the winter sun will actually completely come into that into that space and warm the floor naturally. Um, so, of course, the tile allows us to do that. And then in summer, the sun is completely blocked because of the way it's been designed. So that floor remains really cool. But the other thing is it means that the a, a timber, uh, a natural timber would act as a, a, an insulator from the slab. So that means that we're not getting the thermal mass that we wanted to. So it's, it's twofold. It's... I suppose another sustainable principle, but aesthetically, it's beautiful and it's absolutely no maintenance. So my kids can, it's its a great party floor. <laughs> That's fantastic. And in terms of some of the mechanical systems that you touched on, can you talk us through more detail about some of those, like the heat recovery system and those types of things, the solar what what's you know yeah. you obviously had to go through a bit of a learning curve I imagine with some of those things you talked about getting European specialists to help you out how the technology and understanding that and then also what you know in terms of how they work what what's been your process around all of that so Neil was heavily involved in all of the sustainability measures because it was his passion um, so he was really big in finding the right heat recovery ventilator Um, So he researched the market um, and in the end uh, we chose a French brand and I don't know if you're aware that in France now a heat recovery ventilator is compulsory for every new build. Wow. No, I wasn't aware. Yeah, so that's awesome. Um, So we we got the heat recovery ventilator and the way that works is your house needs to be air sealed. Um, Is this what you want me to explain? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, so... It needs to be air sealed or relatively air sealed um, so that you're not getting any leaks. So with not getting any leaks, it means that you're not basically pumping out all the cool air outside in summer and also having that hot air come in through drafts and conversely also then in winter. So predominantly in winter, you're not losing all that heated warmth and letting it escape. But obviously with an air sealed house, that then creates um, moisture and you know you've got no fresh air coming in so you've got no air flow in the home so that's when you use 
a mechanical, I suppose, airflow device and it's using fresh air from outside. You've got a duct or a little vent in every room, including the bathrooms. We don't have anything vented outside. Um, and then you're able to have that flow of fresh air coming in and the recovery ventilator, and you probably can explain this much better than I can, um, brings that air from outside. It's using the warm air from inside and then exchanging that air and then bringing that fresh air inside, but it's at the room temperature of the of the home inside. Yeah. I bet you can do this better than me. No, but. no, that was awesome. I think that um, it's this thing, isn't it? What I'm finding uh, in sharing information about, you know, sustainable approaches, these mechanical ventilation systems uh, and having airtight homes is there's a – there's a concern and a hesitancy, I suppose, just from um, from people not knowing um, or this this feeling counterintuitive that I'm going to lock my house down, I'm not going to let any drafts in and then I'm going to pump air in and out of it. Are you kidding me? That's going to be like being in an aeroplane, you know? It's going to be horrible. It's going to be it's just germs floating around and those types of things. But, um, you know, I think that the difference is this the filtration system that gets used by these ventilation systems that enables you to dry out moisture, remove dust, remove allergens, remove any um, terrible smells. Um, you know, the it's it's that thing of it's the ultimate ability to control the air. And I think that what's been coming through for me is you just have to walk inside one of these homes to notice and feel the difference that this isn't actually, it's still fresh. It still feels light and comfortable and, you know, smells great. Uh, It's not stuffy. Uh, It's, and it's removing all of the, those standard pollutants that you experience on a house every day that you've just become Mm -hmm. accustomed to. So and, and I suppose f- further to that, and I think that's the really frustrating part when you're trying to let people understand how that works, is they almost need to live in a house like that for a couple of weeks. It's like, almost like a try before you buy. And I can understand the hesitation with, oh, what is that? Do you mean you don't open the windows? Sure we do. Uh, we open the windows all the time, but it just means in winter when people want to open the window to let fresh air, and you don't need to because you've got that fresh air coming in. The other thing I love about it is um, when you've been away and you've locked up the house for a couple of weeks, you come back and it doesn't have that dusty, non-lived-in smell because the fresh air, you sort of tone it down a bit. You you, um, you know, you can control the airflow that's coming in and out. Um, so that's fabulous as well. So but, yeah, it is, and I think that's probably because there's a bit of an expense. You know, they're sitting at around between ten and 15000 You can't see it. People don't really know what it's going to give them, and that's probably, I think, the first thing that they scrub off unless yeah. they've experienced it. But you'll spend more than that on a ducted air conditioning system in a two-storey, 400-square-metre yes. house, you know, so. Ram that up and spend their two and a half grand. But it's that I think that's the biggest challenge. I try and invite people here a lot so that they can sort of, experience it and it's a really hot day and they'll say oh it's really temperate here but you need to live in it to really know yeah and a couple of things that I actually forgot to mention um the other things that we did which was we put in a um 20,000 litre underground tank uh which was to service our garden our toilets and our laundry which I know a lot of people don't like to do but again like you say you've got the filtration cleaned the the clothing perfectly um And we also had, um, we didn't want to break the insulation, so we have got our shower, shaver cabinets recessed into the wall, which is quite normal, but that then means that you won't have the insulation going straight through on an external wall. So we made sure we double framed that area. So we still have the insulation going behind anywhere where we had a niche. And, um, And I think another really important thing that I wanted to mention was it wasn't just about the house for us, it was about the site. So, yes, you can have a sustainable house and then the site doesn't really, it doesn't really marry in with what you're doing. So that's why we also then had a native garden, our vegetables, our compost. So everything is true to the whole sustainability cause rather than just the house itself. That's, yeah, and it is, it's that holistic approach of thinking about your living experience from boundary to boundary, isn't it? So with the underground tank, is that sitting below the slab of your home? Is that, did it go in first? Whereabouts is it? It's uh, it's in the rear of the garden. Mm-hmm. It's actually underneath our veggie patches, so you'd never even know it was there, but we can still um, access it if we need to. Uh, and it's got a big pump in there, and it's very rarely empty. Uh, so we really we fill the pool with it as well because, you know, there's no need to use rain, uh, um, mains water for the pool. So, 
It's um, extraordinary, isn't it? Because you think in a suburban in a suburban garden and yard with a you know a a five bedroom house that you wouldn't be collecting you'd still need to top it up in some way shape or form but that's you know and that's not a big undertaking to include that type of tank in your home particularly if you do bury it in the in the yard so i mean i know we here living in a more rural location a regional location where where we don't have town water we're on tank water for everything mm. so um and we drink rainwater we shower in it we do our laundry yes. in it you know and then yeah. we we have you know um creek water that we use for our other bits and pieces so it's it's really it's a very different mindset to when you're just used to turning on the tap and then paying a bill at the end of every quarter for the privilege mm-hmm. of it so i love that you've built in these things it must it must be I don't know, just that liberation of knowing that you don't have these high-cost energy bills, high-cost water bills coming in, that you're not subjected to the growing costs of those things because of this investment that you made up front. It must actually, you know, it, it, if you just be, yeah. does it just become customary for you or do you still get yeah, that buzz it, of it? But I suppose even beyond the dollars, it's more that we feel that we're taking, we're doing our own contribution and taking the load off the planet with the things that we're doing. And I suppose we're not taking our resources for granted. And it's also really good for the kids to learn this too. I mean, they just think it's standard. Um, and that's great that they can grow up like that too. Even though we do live in the suburbs, we don't have the, I'd love to live in a place like where you live, but it's, you can do it on a suburban block. And I think we really wanted to try, show people that it's possible. Yeah, oh, I just think it's brilliant. So now can you talk me through your pool? Because your pool is gorgeous. Thank and, you. and I know that it was a very special feature. Um, yeah. And it, it's got some special um, sustainability features. Yes. Tell me all about it. Okay, so we call it the Billabong. Um, well, it is a billabong because it's a natural pool, so I suppose those words are interdispersed. But it is special because, again, it's quite a new thing in Australia. They're huge in Europe, uh, these natural pools, as you can imagine, in Germany and Austria and places like that. So it doesn't use any chlorine or any salt. So it's like you're swimming in a lake. So it's absolutely beautiful that you can come out of that, not have to shower because you get need to get the chlorine off or the salt off your skin. It's beautiful. So any sort of pond or lake. And what I love about it too, which is not to everyone's liking, is, you know, we've got an ecosystem going on there. There's dragonfly nymphs. We've got tadpoles. Um, we've got water beetles. And then it's got water lilies in it and um, reeds and things like that. So it just looks so inviting. It's not a natural it's – it's a natural shape, so it's like an organic – an organic shape that's surrounded by boulders, um, basalt boulders, which they actually meant something to my husband from where he grew up. Mm. Uh, and then it's landscaped with um, with all these beautiful native plants. And I suppose it, it's, well, I call it the water feature that you can swim in. We don't <laughs> cover it. It's, um, it's just something beautiful to look at all year round. So it doesn't look like a conventional pool. And yeah. it is a talk because it's so unusual. And so what's the lining of it? It's um, the, the closest thing that I could call it, dare I use these words, like a pebble mix. Yes. <laughs> from yeah. the, that used to surround conventional pools in the, um, in the 70s and 80s. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's, it's quite a natural lining. Some people line them with rocks, completely with rocks, but the pebble mix actually comes up into the rocks so it looks like it's all blended. So it almost looks like a sandy, uh, it's a natural shade. We haven't coloured the pool. I didn't want a blue pool. And I felt that it also went against the sustainability thing of then going to stick in a, a chlorinated pool. Yes. It sort of just didn't make sense. So I wanted a green pool. And so we actually chose the colour of the pebble mix to enhance the greenness as much as possible. Fantastic. Yeah. And when you yeah, have a look at the photos, it's, uh, it is, it's a, it's a natural feature in your back garden that isn't just something that you, you're looking out of and, you know, sort of dealing mm. with through the winter months, waiting for the summer months to, for it to be warm again to use. But it is, it's this lovely feature that adds to the value of your garden year round. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's so much more lush now than when the photos were taken. It's, it's almost like people walk in and it's much cooler out the back as well because it's just so, there's so much garden so much greenery, which we've planted all of, um, but it, it is much cooler and it just feels like a, a suburban jungle oasis. It's just, it's very dense 
in foliage. And we've got a lot of birds that are coming now, a lot of native birds. Um, we talk to our magpies. So it's just in creating all this, um, yeah, all this additional wildlife that's coming that hadn't been there before. Isn't that amazing you've been able to create that in the burbs? Like, you know, it's just gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. So as much as everyone around us is basically developing and knocking down every possible tree conceiving, all we're trying to do is just plant more trees. So, <laughs> but it makes such a difference. And, again, people have to live with that to really understand the difference. Yeah. It makes well, such a difference. I think, too, uh, I mean, I've spoken about this before, that – the connection to nature, the connection to the outdoor environment is actually something that's essential for our health and our well-being. You know, a lot of what we do in terms of designing for orientation is about being connected to those daily cycles, those seasonal cycles that we become really disconnected from in urban development but are actually you know, they're proving scientifically, it's not just anecdotal anymore, but they're proving scientifically the difference that this makes to our health, our mental health, our our physical health, our well-being overall, our stress levels, our anxiety levels, all of these things. So to be able to create a home where you can walk in, feel connected to nature, connected to the seasons, see the sunlight, know that you're, you know, being operating in a sustainable way. I, you know, this isn't a question that I, I that we spoke about, but how, how have you actually seen that shape your lifestyle and your like the the well being of your family overall in the last few years? Look, I think for the kids especially, um, they're outside a lot. I mean, we are not really a technology orientated family anyway, but the garden is zoned, so there's a big trampoline, but that's just basically completely camouflaged by trees. So you can hardly even see it. Then we've got our veggies. So they're really keen to go out and pick um, the veggies and what are we going to plant next. So they're really involved with that. But also just to go out there and sit and watch the birds duck into the pool and then go into the calistamins and things like that. And just to see the growth of the sorts of um, flora and fauna that are coming into the garden. We have a lot of nests built. We've had a, a bat come in and build a nest. Uh, we've had a couple of birds build nests and the kids are absolutely ecstatic. They see the eggs, they see the that, – I just can't imagine that that happens often in a in a suburban block. But the kids are really connected with that and we just love, particularly in summer, just going out there and, you know, having a glass of wine and just sitting there. And I can just sit there and look at the pool and just have that – there's also a slight trickle with it when it's filtering um, and it almost sounds a little bit like a waterfall. Well, that's just the most soothing sound. So – I definitely think that our children have benefited a lot from it because they're connected with the animals and the birds that we have, the parakeets and all that sort of stuff, and they love it. Yeah, that sounds gorgeous. So, mm -hmm. and it sounds like you've it's given you the opportunity to slow down things a bit because you can just sit and enjoy, which is what your home's supposed to be about, you know. So. Yeah, sure. <laughs> rather than looking around at all the headaches. <laughs> so, yeah, right. <laughs> the filtration system for the pool, you mentioned that. Is it is it a large unit or, you know, is that sitting separate to the pool? How's, how does... Yes, so we've actually had it built under the deck. So we've got a natural um, uh, deck, a natural timber deck that's there and that sits all under. So it's basically got a couple of hatches. So it's got a natural skimmer, a normal skimmer that you'd have in a pool, but without the, the system actually comes from Austria um, and the skimmer is actually a frog-friendly skimmer, so it's got a little ramp that the frogs can climb up and not get stuck in the skimmer. So that melted my heart. Um, <laughs> so then it's got a filtration system, a second it's a seconds filter that uses the bacteria to eat the algae um, because, you know, you do get that in a natural environment. Then it's got another filter that re removes the trace elements so the algae haven't actually got anything to eat. And look, it needs, you know, my husband really looks after the pool and he sort of says, look, it, you know, it does need work. It's not like there's no work, but it's not as much, I suppose, as a normal pool. You just have to, you know, clear out the skimmer and, you know, flush it, uh, the filtration system out uh, once or twice a week. So I think it's worth it for what you get. Yeah, no, it sounds amazing. And, I, I mean, pools are a lot of work. So anything that you can do to lower the maintenance on a pool mm -hmm. is, a, is a big um, – and they can be a big energy sucker as well. So when you're lowering, you know, and, and choosing systems that are more sustainable in that way, that can certainly help out. So um, 
uh, something else I just wanted to quickly ask you about was the Hebel that you've used. I have a lot of yes. people who are curious about Hebel as a building material. They struggle to sometimes get builders on board with it. Um, it's obviously, it's a commonly used material in a lot of commercial, mm-hmm. um, and, but it does take a certain type of builder to want to use it. How, how did you go about, you know, did you find that difficult at all or was that not your experience? Um, no, look, I don't know whether that's, that, that's a regional thing or not. We've even got volume builders down here using Hebel, which I was surprised about. Um, but we had no issue with, we had to teach our builder a lot of the things that we needed to do, like sealing the house up. He'd never come across any of these things before. So we actually really needed to educate him on a lot of things. Hebel he was really fine with, I suppose, because it goes up quite quickly. They have a lot of support. The actual company, I believe, has a lot of support. But um, oh, we had actually no issues with that at all. That's fantastic. So yeah. Maybe and I think I'm seeing a lot more Hebel being used around, and which I feel is great because uh, I think it is a great product. We've certainly had no issues with it at all. Oh, that's brilliant. No, I just know in certain locations around Australia, the the gangs of tradies and those types of things are geared up to build with. So, for example, in Western Australia, there's a lot of double brick used and in Sydney there's a lot of brick veneer. Um, Queensland, it's obviously a lot of timber frame and lightweight. Um, I, I remember when I was at Mervac, we would go down to Melbourne to see large developments and they were doing precast concrete and, you know, they just had their heads wrapped around stuff that we were always having difficulty getting done in, say, New South Wales or Queensland. So it's great to hear that it's, um, it's used so commonly in Victoria because I think that when you start to to have those conversations of well that you know it's only a state away and they're using it fine and he will too like you say they are always whenever you're trying to get a, uh, a material on board in your project I always recommend calling the manufacturer and company of that material because they'll often have recommended installers they'll often have training programs that they can help because their their interest is getting their product out into more projects so um, that it was a you know I think it's a good point to um, call on Hebel to help out and I think um, it's great to hear that your experience with it it's been a good one so it's been great and we did call a lot of the manufacturers we checked or Neil checked a lot of the products that we were using that were recommended to us he'd go and speak to the manufacturer on just about everything we used um, to make sure that he felt the spec was right um, and that it was going to be suitable for us but no I definitely agree with that fantastic now um uh, can you tell me, you mentioned a little bit before that there were a couple of things that you'd do differently if you had your time again. What, um, it's hard to imagine because the house is so stunning. What, 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 are, what are the things, that, <laughs> what are those things that you think, and I suppose you've had, obviously, you know, this was built, you said four years ago. So the learnings I imagine that you've had since then and the, also the advancement of this part of the industry as well, the availability of products and materials, you know, it's it's only getting better. Um, and so you do, you learn more and you think, oh, I wish I'd known that back then. Um, what what would you do differently? Is there is there is there anything that sort of really jumps out to you? Look, I suppose we compromised on a few things from a budget perspective and I wish we could have done those things. So I suppose where it was going to matter, that's where we did put the money. So, for example, we didn't have, we don't have a Hebel floor between our first and second uh, floor, which, are, which for soundproofing would have just been amazing. We had to use yellow tongue in the end. Um, not such a biggie, but I think it would have been really good to have that. The original design was also going to have a, um, a flush alfresco floor. So inside and outside would have been completely flush. Massive cost for the doors, the drains, meeting the regulations, so that went. And we also were going to have it frameless going outside, so it would have been just one big massive space. The engineering, the steel required for that. So aesthetically that would have been amazing, but we saved over a 100 grand taking that out. And for me, or for us it was, don't compromise on the structure. It's a nice to have from a design perspective. It would make it plus plus but we can live with this, like, you know, pull your head in, just get the sustainability right. So if we had the money, that would have been awesome to do that. I suppose from a couple of interior perspectives, we used, I specified solid acrylic surface for the bench tops. They're throughout the entire house. Um, really, as you said, to test it for my clients as well. I hadn't lived with that surface before, but it's repairable. It's a fabulous product, but I chose a dark colour, knowing in advance that it wasn't going to be 
not as it's definitely as durable, but it does show more of the scratches than say a lighter color. And I suppose if I had my time over, I'd probably choose a lighter color, but I still love the product. Um, another thing was we really entrusted with the architect that we weren't going to need external shading for our east our east windows. And we challenged him a lot on that and he assured us we would not need any sort of external shade protection for the windows. So we didn't do it and we need it. And I really wish we had have gone with our knowledge rather than his and put those in. Um, another thing probably would have been that we didn't want to go to council to get any sort of planning permit because dealing with our local council is a nightmare. We dealt with them before. So we built within the parameters of ResCode, the Victorian regulation, as well as the council regulations. And what that meant was we didn't go and get dispensation for a higher roof line towards the back of the house because they're on a sloping block, which meant that the children's bedroom ceilings are lower than what we really should have done because they can't get ceiling fans in. And I really regret we didn't do that. But the thought of going to council was just, we can't do it, we can't do it. And I think that was a compromise we shouldn't have made. And I suppose the luxurious thing is we've got a large enough ensuite that we could have had a bath. And I thought, I think it's a bit over the top to have two bars in one house but I think from a private oasis just in my own space rather than hanging out in the family bathroom, that would have been really nice. But, hey, that's a first-world problem. <laughs> that's not anything to be um, – I don't feel it was a compromise, but it would have been a really nice to have. Yeah. No, and I, I love your honesty because it's actually really rare to have – particularly designers share, okay, this is what I would do differently. And, and for the UA community – it's a gift, you know, to get these kind of designers insight into actually, because, you know, customary. So are the kids' bedroom ceilings 2,400? Big so, mistake. Yeah, and you feel like that's still too low to put a ceiling fan in it. Too low. Yeah. Um, you need 2,7. It's, it's just too low. And also the other thing is my daughter now wants a loft bed. <laughs> She's got about 20 centimetres to get into her bed. She's happy with that, but it'll only last a year. Yeah. And I'm, I just think, wow, we should have just gone to council and got that dispensation to to just get better ceiling heights for them. And, look, I'm really open with my clients like I have been here. I don't want them to – I'm not going to be so arrogant to say I just do it because we did it. It's like learn from this. We should never have done that. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting though, isn't it? Because I know I know New South Wales is similar. A lot of have a lot of Sydney clients really trying to avoid full DAs and just going through complying development certificates. Um, and it does set you up, obviously, to have to make certain choices about the project in order to accommodate that. And it is, I, I'm, you know, it's it's difficult because you say, well, we should have we should have pushed for it, but at the same time, you don't know whether if you had gone down the planning permit process, would that have blown up a whole other, you know, can of worms that means that the house, there would be more significant compromises. So the beauty of 2020 hindsight is that it's 2020. <laughs> that is true. When you get you never know what you're going to get on the day. Yes. So, and we'd been through that experience. But look, I think ceiling fans just you know I try and put them in everywhere in clients houses and and I'll be honest about something else in our own bedroom which does have a higher ceiling height my husband wanted it and I said over my dead body we need a pendant light in there I want the aesthetic of a pendant light and uh, over, after a couple of years it was like he said can we please have this fan <laughs> and I said all right we'll have the fan I'll get rid of the pendant light well it's just been gold yes. it's like Oh, this is – and, of course, you've got to get a good fan that's silent. Yes. But it, it, I just couldn't believe the difference, even though we don't really need to cool it up there that much. It's just so beautiful. So every house now that I deal with, it's like get, get the ceiling fan in. <laughs> so I'm just disappointed my kids can't have that too. Yeah. Oh, look, Francis, I think you're giving them lots of gifts in other ways uh, in oh, the home you. that you provided for them. <laughs> and I've just, it's been such a joy to hear you talk about this beautiful home. And I'm really grateful for your generosity in being so open about, you know, your journey and what you've created. Um, I'm going to pop a link in the show notes to your website, your book, your um, the information about the home. There's photographs on the blog as well. So um, I really encourage listeners to go and check out photographs of the home to be able to put images to what we've been verbally 
really describing because uh, it's um, it's a stunning home and such a credit to you guys because I just know that um, when you did it, this would have been a journey and it would have been, yeah, this this and it would have probably felt like a great big whopping experiment with concern that it might just flop. And so um, for you to have been brave and tenacious to get this um, mm. built in the way that you did is a, is a true credit to you guys. So thank you so much for your time, Francis. Thank you. Thanks, Amelia. Cheers. Bye. Wasn't that awesome? I really do hope you enjoyed it and you found it really helpful. Frances was so open and generous with her sharing of her journey and her learnings. And I encourage you to check out the show notes because in there I'll pop a link to the blog. You'll be able to see photos of Frances's home, of that incredible pool, and uh, also learn more about her business, White Pebble Interiors, and her book, Your Forever Home. Now that episode, my friends, it brings us to the end of season eight, A Simple Guide to a Sustainable Home. It's been epic, hasn't it? It's felt epic. It's felt like a lot of episodes. I've loved hearing from you. So many of you have got in touch with me or with the guests that I've had on to share how much you've loved this season, how much you've learned as well, how long you've been waiting to hear information like this. Uh, It's just been, it's been so encouraging for me to hear what it's meant to you for this episode, these episodes to be put together and for this information to be available to you. Now, there's loads more I could have gone on with. I could be talking about, you know, one thing I didn't touch on a lot was water and uh, grey water and rainwater and those types of things, prefab, uh, more materials, you know, doing a sustainable renovation of a heritage home. There's so many other areas. I feel like this is actually just the, the beginning of a much bigger conversation and I'm sure we'll be revisiting it in the future. And if there's anybody in particular that you believe I should be talking to about these topics, finding guests was always uh, a tricky thing and, you know, it took me it took a lot for me to sort of find the right people to talk with and to share with you. So if there's anyone that you know that I should be talking with, just email me at hello at undercoverarchitect.com so that I can get in touch with them. Now, we're actually going to have a three-week break and uh, so that you've got a chance to go back and listen to anything that you've missed or re-listen to episodes remember I can't think how, there's got to be like over 110 episodes on the podcast now there's so much information and I know lots of you go and listen to episodes over and over again to get new information each time um, and then check back in okay because I am going to be starting off a new season in a couple of weeks as I said and I'm calling it keeping it real okay this is going to be sharing some things that I am becoming more and more compelled to talk about when it comes to building and renovating it's the stuff that everyone experiences it's the stuff that people in the industry talk about Um, but but it's not necessarily being shared publicly and I want to bring these conversations into the light and I want to talk with you about them. So we're going to be diving into that next season. Uh, But just because the podcast isn't going to be getting published for the next couple of weeks, doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. Okay. Tune into the blog. We'll be sharing information there. Make sure that you're on the UA news list. I head out, I send out an, an email every Tuesday morning. It's packed full of latest links to information, things that I'm finding out, you know, events, those types of things. And you can, Uh, sign up for it by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash home design you'll get my free home design e-guide and you'll be able to join the UA news list as part of that so thank you so much for joining me for season eight a simple guide to a sustainable home and for joining me on this podcast remember to tell your friends rate and review I've been seeing the reviews coming through it's always awesome to see how this podcast is helping you and uh, and to hear specific what you're taking away from it and the difference it's making to your renovation or building project so make sure if you haven't you rate and review it's also how other homeowners find out about this podcast and get the help that they need for their projects as well as always I consider it a true privilege to turn up in your ears every week and uh, thank you so much for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally until next time